0: All right, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out to take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Well, weddings are meaningful days. Significant events. Deeply memorable. And that was the case today on this day that we're seeing recorded here in scripture of a Galilean wedding in Cana where Jesus and his disciples and Jesus's mom were attending it comes only one chapter deep in John's gospel just a few days prior John the Baptist came out of the wilderness preaching he saw Jesus and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world this is the son of God And the next day Jesus began to gathering disciples, so Jesus goes on a recruiting spree. A lot happens in chapter 1 before we get here to chapter 2. Hearing John's announcement, two began to follow Jesus, one of them named Andrew. Andrew went and found his brother Simon and said, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Listen to how they speak of him. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus gave Simon a new name, Peter. The next day, Jesus went to Galilee and Philip uh, saw Philip and said, Follow me. Philip was from the same town as Andrew and Simon Peter. Philip went and found Nathanael and said, We have found him of of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael wonders uh, what got into Philip and made himself famous with the line, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Shouldn't have opened up his mouth. So Philip said, And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so we arrive in chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Jesus has been uh, introduced. Jesus has recruited some disciples. His disciples have identified him in a number of significant ways. And now we are invited to a wedding. Jesus' ministry is going public. He's gathered five disciples as I count, and each of them have recognized them in a, as, a, as one. As the one promised in the Old Testament. And though they don't fully know what that would mean necessarily at this point, they do have that right. John 2.2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Of course, his mother was there. I love it if archaeologists dug up a wedding invitation. Invited to Jesus and his disciples. I can just see it. Of course, this probably came by word of mouth, it's maybe a family friend or think about this, a childhood friend of Jesus is getting married. Right? Jesus was part of a family that had friends and neighbors and neighboring towns and they went to each other's weddings and got invited to things. It's part of a human life. Well, however, the invitation came to him included Jesus' disciples which means that word of word was traveling by word of mouth that Jesus was gathering a small band of men and it hadn't been many days and these guys were invited to come with. And so Mary, Jesus, and Jesus' disciples go to a wedding. It'll be helpful to understand how big of a deal weddings are, by the way. So you know, these days you get invited to a wedding and you got half the day left. Um, not if you're maybe involved in it, it's two days. So rehearsal and then wedding day. Then it's over. Mm, of course not if you're the couple or the parents. Then it's a six-month thing. <laughs> this would be maybe the most momentous moment in the life of the family. It didn't last part of a day or even a whole day, it probably lasted an entire week. Especially in this region, a wedding would be a truly historic event, not just for the couple and their family, but for the region and everyone connected with the family. And for that reason, the reputation of the couple and the host would be largely defined by the event. You know, as a dad now, I, I always made sure when I was at a friend's wedding that I, I shook the hand of the fathers. And thank them for uh, hosting, um, putting on the reception. Uh, oh, will I do? Will I ever do that now? And will I appreciate it when I'm a dad and handing my daughter off? Right. So the man's investing his time and his money and his heart in showing off his daughter and giving his daughter away. The father of a daughter would. A very deeply personal thing, and in some ways. It's the reputation of the family that comes with the wedding, isn't it? So we get that. That's why Mary's words in verse 3 represent an atomic bomb of sorts. The wine ran out and the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, They have no wine. Those are four bad words to hear on a day like this. This is not good, not good at all. Someone has suggested that maybe they ran out because Jesus and his disciples showed up you know, midweek and then drank the wine and now there's a problem but they were on the invite list that doesn't hold up I don't think no need to lay blame it just happened so serious a problem would this be if the groom's family could be the groom's family could actually be sued get this sued for the shame that that kind of a faux pas would bring on the bride and on the young couple and on the family that have a generational memory in the community. And so a lawsuit is possible. I think we can consider a couple parallels to this. Every year when we host our conference, Claris, I click the buttons to fly our speakers here and book the plane tickets. I always lay in bed on Thursday night or Wednesday night, the night before the day they fly, and think, oh, I hope they're flying to the right city. And then I check. And of course I've checked four times already and seen it with my eyes. You can just imagine, you know, busy, showing up to the airport, getting on the plane, and when I typed in Albuquerque and it populated, you know, three options, I clicked the wrong one and, oh gosh. So, that'd be a nightmare. That'd be, uh, I'd lose my job, I don't know. Uh, It'd be a bad deal, it'd be memorable. I had a friend who oversaw the graduation at at an institution that will remain unnamed. It was his first year overseeing graduation that year, and you have a giant block of several hundred master's graduates and PhD graduates, the culmination of half a decade and some maybe a decade of work, and forgot to distribute to the students who were graduating the bulletins, right? Uh, That's not a big deal until the president of the institution comes to that historic and solemn moment during the ceremony where he reads and they're supposed to respond with what is printed in their booklets. And it was two minutes before the right time when, when one of the faculty had noticed and then had just made it happen about, they got about 10% of the books in people's hands, and enough were reading for it not to be totally embarrassing. That would have been the end of his job. Or I can think of the, um, the City Corp Center in New York City, you may have heard of this, built in 1977, one of the world's tallest buildings at the time and the seventh tallest now. So it was built around on a block where some church owned the corner of the block. They could build above the church or around the church, but not, out, not they couldn't you know, flatten the church. It was the churches. So the building, if you were to walk by it, uh, really starts about nine, nine uh, stories up. It's on stilts. On well, a normal building, you'd, you know, you'd do uh, measurements for wind force against certain sides of the building, but not the corners of the building because the way buildings are built, the way this building was built, Think thing could tip over. So the build The whole building architect gets a phone call from a PhD student doing some research in architecture and says, I think your building could fall over with winds of like 60 miles an hour. You know, something that happens every three or four years, I think. So in the quiet of about two weeks, they reinforced some of the structures in that building and developed an evacuation plan for ten city blocks because if the building tipped over, you'd have a domino effect all the way to City Park. So that was a bad phone call for this architect. I'm glad he wasn't so proud. It probably would have been found out anyways. It's the wrong way. So socially speaking, to run out of wine at a wedding would have probably been genera- had generational effects on the family reputation. that would have stayed with them and never left a bad day and the worst in their lives. And so Mary says, we have no wine and now we know what that means. It's not we just ran out of soda. It's not we ran out of whatever, it's, it's the party is over and so are their lives. She was probably involved in, a, she was probably involved in some fashion in the hospitality, we can, we can assume. And Jesus responds, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, Jesus' response is cryptic at best, is it not? We're not sure what, at first what on earth he had in his mind. But Mary trusted him and told his servants, just do what he says. So this is in Jesus' hands. And they do, verse 6 through 7. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now these are big jars, 20 to 30 gallons. We wouldn't even call them jars, we'd have another name for them. They could hold 20 to 30 gallons each and there are six of them and the guys fill all six and they fill all six to the brim. Like my daughter Madeline when she gets water out of the fridge, it's all the way to the top. All the way to the top. Probably overflowing. Verse eight through 10. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. And so Jesus has turned water into wine. We have ourselves a miracle. We should also know that the master cites a custom that under normal circumstances, a host would serve the best wine first because as it happens and people drink, they're less able to discern the quality of the wine. Because they've been drinking, and the insinuation here, the implication is uh, that of inebriation by uh, by the text. And it doesn't mean that's what was going on here. It just means, as a matter of custom at weddings, you serve the good wine first. That does give us a uh, excuse to make a really important point here: to zoom out and listen to what the whole Bible says. About wine, which is broader than just wine, is good. Wine in certain amounts can be deadly. It can be bad. It can wreck your life. It can ruin you. Proverbs 21: Wine is a mocker, a strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Hosea, prophet, says, "Whoredom, wine, and new wine take away the understanding." In Ephesians 5:8, we're given a direct command: Do not get drunk with wine. So we just want to be clear as we come to a text where there's wine here and that, um, that drunkenness is a sin, and the Bible is just so clear about that. Wine can be a problem, like many things can be a problem, without self-control. And so for some here, drinking uh, at all might be wrong for various reasons, but temptation at least. A devil is uh, crouching at the door, right? And sometimes he's holding a bottle. So you need to know yourself. The point is simply that we can't say that what was going on here wasn't wine like we know it, but something diluted that we wouldn't recognize as wine. It was wine. But here we are probably a few days into the wedding and the wine is now gone. Jesus told servants to fill up some jars with what would be as much as 880 gallons of water and he has turned every drop of that water into wine. So why did he do this? Why did Jesus do this? And what is the meaning of what is the meaning of Jesus' sign? Well, of course, we notice Jesus' curious response to his mom in verse four. She says, they have no wine. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. What was that all about? Well, it's a hint that there is something deeper going on here than merely a display of divine power or compassion. John is dropping this line here in part because the language of hour will be repeated over and over and over again until the cross. And so John says, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So in this sign, Jesus was revealing, we could say his glory and because of this sign, his disciples believed in him. I love it when a text gives you a statement like that because it makes it really easy to set up an outline. We'll answer the question, what glory? How did Jesus manifest his glory? How did Jesus manifest his glory? When well, answering this question, we'll also find out at the same time what it is about Jesus that we're to believe, what it means that He is the Christ, and we'll also be in listening to the story and seeing it for what happened, we'll also be compelled to believe He is who He is, so, so we can pray. No surprise for this sign Jesus was doing more than just answering the need of a temporal and earthly situation. He was in, indicating that he is the answer to humanity's eternal need and the only one from heaven and, and the one from heaven who can provide the only answer. All right, so how does this sign manifest Jesus' glory? Well, first, Jesus' wine was badly needed. It was badly needed, the wine Jesus provided. We have no wine. They were without it. And of course, we've explored why it was so badly needed. We knew that had to be a problem. But no wine is also a problem in the Bible. First, it's good to just say that Wine is a good thing, it's not just a dangerous thing, it is a positively good thing in the Bible, Song of Solomon, says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, compared to wine is the love of lovers. Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So drink your wine with a merry heart. But more came to Jesus' mind, than the need of the event or the physical gladness that wine can bring. Wine in the Bible is symbolic of spiritual joy and no wine is symbolic of sadness. It'll help to listen in on a few moments across the Bible to see this. So when Isaac blessed Jacob, he blessed him with the promise of wine in Genesis 27. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. And in Deuteronomy, no wine is a sign of a broken covenant. Deuteronomy 28, you shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Locusts shall eat the offspring of your cattle and of the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It, shall leave, uh, it, shall, it, shall, it also shall not leave you grain, wine or oil, the increase of your hands, herds, or the young, young of your flock until they have caused you to perish." Bad news, that is a curse. No wine and you being caused to perish. The prophets used wine to speak of spiritual barrenness. Listen to this in Joel 1. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. In Hosea 9.2, threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them and the new, and the new wine shall fail them. God takes it away from Israel because Israel has not got thanked God for it, Hosea 2.8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And so no surprise in the prophets, God's future blessings are indicated by wine. Hosea 2.21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth. And the earth will answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. He's returning things to the way they should be. So notice a few, you'll notice we have heard a few words repeated here. So you have grain, grain symbolic of food, sustenance, make bread out of it. A man's strength comes from grain. Oil was from olives, used for a variety of reasons, medicinally. uh, The base for soaps. Um, Lotions could help a person's skin under the sun in those days. So oil, grain, and wine are on a loop in the Bible. You see them together all the time, each of them doing something a little different. Wine being given for gladness. Here's Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, And bread to strengthen man's heart. So, to summarize, wine is one of the things God gives and takes away as a sign of spiritual blessing leading to joy or curse leading to sadness. And the presence or absence of wine among God's people in the Old Testament is a sign of Israel's spiritual flourishing or her spiritual barrenness. So, wine is closely tied to the spiritual health of God's people in the Old Testament. So we saw that Jesus' wine was badly needed. And second, Jesus' wine was abundant, abundant. Jesus had the servants fill six stone jars and water of water for a total of his, we've said, as many as 180 gallons of water. This would have been more than enough wine for the party, and likely a gift to the bride and groom who would sell it or keep it. It was a tremendous amount of wine, and that's the point. When the prophets spoke about the coming age, they didn't just speak about wine, but about a lot of wine. The mountains filled with grapevines. Listen to this, Joel 3. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Or Amos 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall also drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it, covered in grapevines. This is talking about a new creation. You don't plow and reap in the same place, in the same world at the same time. This is a different kind of universe, a new creation that God promises, and wine is everywhere. Isaiah 25, 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. So Jesus' wine is needed. Jesus' wine is abundant. Abundant. It's abundant. And third, Jesus' wine was excellent. It comes with age. Remember what the master of the feast said in verse 10, everyone who serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And Jesus made good wine on purpose. Let's read those verses again that we've just read from the prophets. And listen, I'll highlight some different words here. In Joel, and on this day the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, or Amos, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And Isaiah, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So this wine was needed. It was in abundance when Jesus made it, and it was excellent. It was well aged, it was perfect. Fourth, Jesus' wine comes at the right time when the master of the feast says, John 2.10, you have kept the good wine until now. It Comes at a good time. Jesus' timing is just right. When there was no wine, Jesus brought wine better than anything these people had tasted and in the same way, the timing of Jesus' coming, his kingdom and the new creation he brings follows on barrenness and when it comes, it is better than anything it's his people have known. Jesus' wine is needed, it comes in abundance, it comes with age, it comes at the right time, and it comes, uh, and Jesus' wine uh, was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. John says it was the first of Jesus' signs. It was just the beginning in the sense that Jesus had much more to do in his ministry. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Who notices the signs? So so Mary, Jesus' mom, probably knows that Jesus did it. Uh, Jesus' disciples are said to have believed in him so they knew and the servants knew because Jesus had given them orders. But the master of the feast doesn't know, at least when he gives the speech and we're not told that he did. And there should be a whole crowd of people there uh, who wouldn't have known that it was Jesus who did this. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is introduced by a crazy man from the woods who eats locusts. And his first miracle announcing the coming of God's king and Messiah is a miracle for which another person, the bridegroom, gets the credit by the master of the feast, by everyone save his mom and a few disciples. So it's a public miracle, right? But it's not really that public. His public ministry has started. But in a sense, it was a miracle for a private few. And of course, we know about it now. Remember what Jesus said to Nathaniel? John 1.51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus' ministry will get more public in time. And it doesn't get better than what Jesus has described there for Nathaniel. And yet before they would see this, they would see Jesus ascending and descending on a cross, on a cross. John 2 is the first time Jesus talked about wine and Jesus would talk about it again in the upper room. John doesn't record this, but Jesus does. Do you notice the beginning of that paragraph started with, and when the hour came, and when the hour came. You Recognize that from John 2? Gives us a clue as to what Jesus was doing in his abrupt response to Mary. Surely it was a strange interaction. I would love to have seen it, by the way. Look on mom's face. uh, If there was more to the conversation, if this is really especially abbreviated, or if it was awkward as it looks, or out of line, what does that have to do with me? It could be translated what do we have to do with one another? To say woman uh, doesn't, looks weird on the page and it was kind of weird at the time. The word used there isn't rude but it does imply distance. It would be strange for a son to use that with his mother. She was likely a widow at this point and had leaned on Jesus for much. Jesus, of course, being an amazing son, able to be counted on, always helpful, a man if there ever was one. But Jesus' public ministry had begun. It was only a few days old, and now she would not come to him anymore as a mother to a son, or at least in the same way. I think this is how to explain it. Jesus won't be obeying his mom on his mission. Instead, he'll be doing his father's will. And so Jesus' public ministry begins. His mother is there, but Jesus is there with his disciples. And Mary won't show up until John 19 at the cross. So she recedes into the background. The take home here is just that Jesus' wine miracle is by his own authority and according to his own father's plan. His first sign in a series of a string of signs on his way to the cross when his hour does come. So Jesus and John by putting it here is hinting forward at where the story's going and if you read the whole story ten times and you hear the hour has not yet come in John 2 you can see what's going on. You see, the wine of true life that Jesus brings for us is expensive wine. It was expensive for him. It was required that he drink a different kind of wine, a different kind of wine, the wine of God's wrath. Jeremiah uses the imagery of a cup of wine in speaking about God's judgment on all sinners. Jeremiah 25, listen to this. The prophets are entertaining. They're also scary. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And when we think about the time when Jesus' hour came as Jesus hangs on the cross, when Jesus was physically on the cross and thirsty, he was figuratively drinking from this very cup. Taking on the curse that is ours and the wrath of God that we deserve, though an innocent man. It doesn't get any worse Than this, and this is what Jesus has done for us, he turned water into wine to illustrate how he turns the empty jars and dried up parties of our sin-loving souls into jars of salvation and overflowing joy. And that's what the good news is, is, that Jesus hangs on a cross for sinners. And he brings sinners to God. Psalm 4, 7, you have put more joy in my heart, the psalmist writes, than they have when their grain and wine abound. Wine is just symbolic here. So whatever makes, whatever makes people happy in this world, God is better than all of it times a million. All of it times a million. More joy in my heart God gives than when their grain and new wine abound. Jesus brings life to a whole new level and that is part of the point of this wedding party and it's part of the point why Jesus picked this, this moment to have his first sign and to launch his public ministry, at least in terms of its miraculous uh, presence. He's saying he brings life to a new level for those who believe in him. He brings the good wine. And so what does Jesus want us to do for having witnessed this sign? Oh, well, that's easy. It comes in our last verse of this passage, which sounds a whole lot like the last verses of John chapter 20, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, where John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, including this sign that we've witnessed, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we're here to remember who we believe in, and why we believe, and what he gives. And if you haven't believed, you're here, being called by this passage, having witnessed this miracle, to believe in Christ, in his name, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the one who gives life to his people at a whole new level. Isn't he good? Isn't he good? So this is what wine is doing in the Bible. Now, it would be interesting to find a chart of... um, uh, sermons on wine. I bet you ninety-nine percent of them are uh, warning. A good good amount of them should be warning. Um, uh, the Bible speaks in these kinds of ways. God has written wine into His story, so that we might know the joy of His kingdom. And Jesus turned water into wine, so that we might know the joy of His kingdom, His lavish grace and the expensive uh, salvation that he bought, he's good.